Well, we're preaching on James, and today we're in James 3. And I wanted to give a little bit of context before we talk about the wisdom from above. Now, one of the things about James is he and his family grew up in the Jewish tradition. So they grew up with the Torah. They grew up with our Old Testament. They grew up with Lamentations and Song of Solomon and Proverbs and all of those good things. And, um, and, and, and James knew the works of Solomon. He kind of mirrored his approach. And, and we know, um, I want to start actually with Solomon, because we know that Solomon, the thing he asked the Lord for was wisdom, and God gave him that wisdom from above. Now, we know that he had great wisdom, but we know that he didn't always use it. Case in point, 700 wives and 300 concubines is not wisdom. <laughs> Could you imagine um, parent-teacher conferences with that many kids? Probably had his own school. I, um, if, if you just think about that, that's a thousand women and their children, and you can just imagine how messy that got some of the time. Just the number of resources it required to support a family that size. He's very um, lucky that he, he did so well as a king as far as finances, because that, that would be hard. Um, but I want to start with, with one of the spots in 1 Kings where we see Solomon's wisdom playing out. And it starts with two prostitutes. And, and they both have given um, birth to children. And during the night, one of them rolls over on her child and smothers it, and it dies. And she notices that the other woman's child's still alive. So while she's sleeping, she goes over and she switches the children and so this other mother wakes up with her child dead in the morning. She thinks, and then she realizes when she looks at it that it's not her child. And um, they both go before Solomon. And, and one of the things I find interesting is Solomon is actually hearing a domestic dispute regarding whose child whose is as the king between two prostitutes. That even though their station in life is very humble, Solomon was still the person to overhear and see that. And in the midst of this, the one mother is saying what had happened, that her child has been stolen. And the other mother is saying, no, no, that's not true. It was, it was her child that died, and she stole it from me. And, and they're both saying, no, this is my child. So Solomon does something really crazy. He calls for them to bring a sword to cut the child in two. Now, I do not think his intention was to actually do that. But, I mean, the scripture says that, that, the, that the word is, is like a sword. It, 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 it goes down to the marrow. He was using that as wisdom from above to discern what was really going on. And so when we pick up in 1 Kings 3, 26... Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all of Israel heard the judgment the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived 
that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So we're reading in the book of James. And James is interesting because his older brother was Jesus. He had to grow up with a sinless older brother. Talk about pressure. But I think that Jesus' character was in him the entire time. That James had an older brother who was loving and kind and gentle and humble. And I don't know what their relationship looked like. We know that during Jesus' ministry that, that, that the family was kind of trying to call Jesus out. And it may have been as much as anything that, oh my gosh, if you keep this up, the Romans are going to kill you. Or have you kind of gone over from being my older brother to thinking you're the son of God? Which happened to be true in both counts. <laughs> but in the end, after Jesus is crucified and resurrected... James becomes a believer and a follower of the way, and he becomes one of the key apostles and one of the key leaders in the early church. So he knew Jesus before Jesus was the Christ. He knew Jesus when he was Jesus Joseph's son or Jesus the carpenter's son. So he knew Jesus' character. He knew the kind of man he was. And And James understood that God had a wisdom from above. He knew that from Solomon. He knew that from, from reading the scriptures. But he also understood that because of who Jesus was, that now all of us had access to that wisdom. That if we were to humble ourselves and, and ask the Lord, he would provide wisdom to all of us. So that's where James starts now, in James three, thirteen through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. There's a couple things. One is the emphasis here in the first sentence isn't on understanding. That we can come to knowledge, we can come understanding, but wisdom is something that's far more elusive. Wisdom is putting that understanding into practice in a right way. And then when he says good conduct, show his works, the the Greek root for that isn't a work. It isn't an event. It's actually consistent, ongoing, persistent behaviors. In other words, let your character um, show the meekness of wisdom. And I, I don't like the English word meekness as much. I think it's also been translated as humility and gentleness. And I'm gonna go with gentleness um, it all, the, the root is all the same, but if you think of a huge horse that's wild, and then it's, when we say it's been gentled, it's been brought into alignment, and it's now been tamed. The, it has lost none of its power. In fact, I would argue it has more power, because now the power, instead of being chaotic and wild, all that power is focused in one direction that it's actually more effective. And not only that, in its, the gentled horse is in alignment with its master. And it, it goes as its master directs. Now that's a very powerful position to be in. So one of my first memorable lessons in humility 
Um, I was in my 20s. I was working up at a scout camp, Camp Jado, up in the Sierras at Huntington Lake. It's at 7,000 feet. Um, beautiful place. Up there for two months, living up there, all the scouts coming through. And, and um, David Belingit was the, was the director of the um, of, of mountain sports, and he'd had this inter- he was doing something, and I don't remember what created the issue, but a scoutmaster had stepped in and said something or done something, and as a staff member, David came to me and he said, Mark, and he was all upset because he felt like the scoutmaster had stood up against him and disrespected him and, and that he had, had messed up what he was trying to do, and he was really upset about it, and, and um, he didn't know how to handle the situation. So as as the assistant program director, I, I found that scoutmaster and I asked if he would meet with me and I pulled him aside in a place where it was just the two of us so we didn't have to worry about, you know, me shaming him or embarrassing him. And I explained how he'd done these things and how it had upset David and how it really went against what he wanted to do. And, and he sat patiently and he listened to me. And then when I finished, he said, um, would you like to hear my side of the story? And I had this moment of, oh, man. <laughs> it really humbled me because I, I hadn't even stopped to find out. And he explained what he'd said and why he said it. And he gave me d- a different context and more context. I don't, I don't really know exactly what happened. But in that moment, that man had humility. Because, A, he listened to a 20-year-old shoo him out <laughs> without reacting in a negative way. And then instead of chewing me out... He just brought that gently. And I, I actually apologized to him right then and there because I hadn't stopped. And from that moment, I've always known that whenever I hear one side of the story, it doesn't matter how impassioned, how true, how righteous it sounds, there's always another side. And that, that if I am going to be loving and honoring of both people, I need to hear both sides. I can't just do it from one side of the story. So that, that moment humbled me. It taught me to listen. And, and, it, and it shifted how I interacted. Now James is talking about wisdom in this passage. And he does something, if, if you go into the, um, the first nine Proverbs especially, talk about the woman of wisdom and the woman of folly, who are these metaphors for two different approaches in life. In fact, um, the woman... The woman of wisdom, I think, would equate to James's wisdom from above, and the woman of folly would be that demonic wisdom in the world. And what's interesting, in, 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 um, in Proverbs 9, it really lays the two of them out right next to each other, very similar to actually the way that James does it here. And in the midst of that, it says, both, both of those women call out to the simple, those who lack sense. That there are simple people in the world who, who lack sense, who are, who are seeking something, and both of these call out. And the wisdom, the wisdom, um, the, the woman of wisdom actually brings insight for those who listen. But, but the, the woman of folly, those who listen and seek her, actually find death. And, and I bring that up because the, what James does here in comparing and contrasting follows that same model that Solomon used in that. And so if, um, and, and James starts with the woman of folly, or the wisdom from below, if you will. And, and what it looks like, it starts in um, 13, 14, 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, I think there's an and or in there, because wisdom can be earthly and not demonic. But when it's fueled by selfish ambition, it may be definitely leaning that way. And then, and then he finishes in verse 16 with, where, je- where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And I want to go back up to verse 14 for a second. Um, it says, do not boast or be false to the truth. And, and what he's saying here is that if you have a wrong heart, you cannot speak kingdom truth. If your heart is in a wrong place, you are not speaking the truth. So don't go there. In fact, the opposite is, if you humble yourself and you're open to correction and you're open to revelation, then you can be true to the truth. And that's the position we want to seek to be in. So the condition of our heart are observed by the fruit that we produce. And if we have jealousy and and ambition, division and conflict and vile practices will be the outcome. And then he continues on in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And as a side note, I want to compare these to, to Paul's list of the fruits of the spirits from Galatians 5, 22 through 23. If you put those side by side and you look at those, they're different words, but they're, they're showing the same character. They're showing the same kind of person. Both of those reflect the character of Christ. The fruits of the Spirit and the wisdom from above reflect the character of Christ. And I think the other thing that's not said explicitly, but as I, as I dive into it, is they both rely on humility. That, that it's my being open to Christ's character requires humility. And humility, like gentleness, is not decreasing me. The humility is lifting others up. Christ, when he went to the cross and he died for us, was in the most humbled position you could be in. He's on a cross nailed and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Yet that's, he went there for the purpose of setting us free. He did not decrease his power. Actually, his power was increased by the love and the joy and the joy of the love he had for us. Now, one of the things about Proverbs is their general wisdom. There's tremendous godly wisdom in it, but it's general. Things that if you understand, if you follow those principles from Proverbs in general, your life will be better. I say in general because there's exemptions. There, there, are, there are people that don't follow godly wisdom and have good things happen to them. And there are people that follow godly wisdom and have bad things happen to them. They're not promises or guarantees, but they, in general, are great advice. And if you follow them, your life will be richer for it. 
That is not the wisdom, though, that James is talking about here. It's a reflection of that, but the wisdom James is talking about is the wisdom from above that all of us have personal ability to connect to that isn't general wisdom. It's actually specific wisdom to us and what we're experiencing. That God takes care of the details in what we're going through in, in, in our lives. Now, I have a testimony to share about Eugene Christian School because our kids went there, my wife was on the board there, and they were in South Eugene, way down Amazon. I mean, they were below South Eugene practically. And if you were to look at the roster of kids that attended the school, I don't think any of them lived within five-mile radius of there. <laughs> in fact, most of the families, with Christian families with young children lived in Springfield or North Eugene or Coburg Road area. Very few lived down there. And their enrollment was continuing to drop and continuing to drop. And if you've been a part of a school, you know if you don't have enough kids, then you don't have enough income. If you don't have enough income, you can't pay your teachers. And if you can't pay your teachers, you can't have a school. And they were at a crisis because they knew they could not keep going as they went. That they would have to shut down or they'd have to do something different. And they had a vision, they had an understanding that if they moved to someplace different, that things could shift. So they started pursuing that. And they started looking for a place to put the school. And they couldn't find one. They approached First Baptist of Eugene twice to say, well, could we do school in the church? And, and the church did not feel called to do that. And this isn't to diss them. I'm just saying that in God's plan, that, that door kept closing. And conventional wisdom would be, Find where you're going before you sell your property because you don't want to leave yourself homeless because it's hard to have a school when you don't have a building. And there's not a lot of buildings available. But as they searched and they prayed, they became convicted they needed to trust God and sell the property. And then they would find where they were supposed to go. And that's what they did. And it sold very quickly to the Montessori School, I think, which is thriving in South Eugene right now. And then the Koki property came open and they were able to move into that. And in that first year, over that summer, the size of the student population doubled. And the key here is, isn't that they, is that they ignored conventional wisdom. They sought God. They listened to him. They had unity so they knew it was from God. And they did something different in trusting God. And they were blessed for that. Now we move to the end of this section of James. And one of the things in James' pattern of writing is he explains something, and then he has a final line. It's the soundbite line. It's the mic drop line. It's, it's the line that sums up everything and puts it into clear context. And so in James 3.18, he writes, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And, and this is kind of how we've translated it, but it's a little bit tricky because if you actually pull it apart a little bit, the harvest of righteousness is actually the seeds will bear fruit of righteousness that is sown in peace or sown in shalom. Or another way of saying it is that if in peace, in shalom, I sow seeds, those seeds' fruit will be righteousness. Righteousness. 
In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Christ says he is gentle and humble of heart. It's one of the things I love about Jesus, is he's gentle and humble of heart. And I know that Jesus reflects the quality and character of God, which means God the Father is humble and gentle of heart. And I don't know why, but humility invites God. Humility invites us into walking into peace. Humility invites us into, into experiencing his righteousness. Because we start thinking about others and seeing how God sees them as opposed to thinking about what I need. It, humility is the antithesis of jealousy and selfish ambition. <laughs> um, Kristen um, and I were over between Sisters and Ben at Crystal Peaks Horse Ranch. We were visiting there, we did prayer for them, and we were going on a prayer walk together. And they had a road that went around the property, and we started on that road, and we were sharing dreams and praying, and at some point, somebody, well, no, let me be honest, at some point, she said something <laughs> that I took offense to. I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> Probably couldn't remember about a week afterwards, but isn't it like that with a lot of arguments? I remember the argument. I also remember what started it. Um, and it, I'm sure it went something like this, that, that I felt like she wasn't respecting me or I felt like she wasn't honoring me or she said something that, that was a dig at something I'd done. And if she could just understand how I saw it and hear me as I explained with clarity how it really should roll, then everything would be fine. <laughs> and everyone who is married here knows that did not work so well. And we were continued walking, and I was just, I was exasperated because I didn't understand what to do in that moment. And I kind of put my hand up. I may have done it literally. And I just felt a prompting to just sit down and be still. And as we were walking down this gravel road, there was some shade that we came up on. So I just stepped aside, and I sat down. And Kristen kept walking, mostly because she didn't realize I'd stopped. <laughs> and I don't know how far she went. Because I just had my head and I was, I was praying and seeking and, and eventually she stopped and she turned around and then she had to figure out what she was going to do because her husband who she's arguing with all of a sudden just is sitting down on the edge of the road. I don't think she had any clue what that meant in that moment. But she did come back. She stood there for a while and then we slowly engaged. And I, I don't remember how, quite how that interaction went. But I know it got to the point where I said, I feel like the Lord's saying that in our argument, we desecrated that spot. We desecrated that land. And if we want to move forward... We need to go fix that first. And so we actually walked back to where the argument started and we prayed over that spot and we prayed in unity and then we started walking forward and we were together. And, and I'm not saying that's always the fix, but I know in that moment, that's what God wanted us to do. And, and I'm trusting and I hope that some seed of, of, of righteousness was sown in that moment in our marriage but also in that place and for, and for Crystal Peaks Horse Ranch, which is a place that blesses injured horses and kids who, uh, who are hurt. That we want that blessing to fl flow out there. So I had to get to the end of myself <laughs> before I could humble myself. And, and I've tried to learn to get there a little bit sooner and as Kristen can attest, there's many times I do and there's still times I don't. 
but I want to have the heart of humility. I want to have Jesus' heart. I want to walk in the peace that comes when I walk in humility, that all of Christ's love and grace and mercy, shalom arrives when I go into a humble place. And that shalom isn't just peace as in the absence of conflict, that's completion and wholeness arrives when I go into a place of humility. And when I sow from that place, good things happen. Peace occurs. My marriage has changed, relationships changed, people are healed, our city is transformed through simple acts of humility and by putting others and by putting God's kingdom ahead of my personal wants and needs. That the fruit of righteousness comes from humility planted in peace. And that's what God has for us. So Lord, I just ask that we be a humble house. That we be a house with your eyes that sees others before we see ourselves. Lord, that we trust you to take care of our needs. We trust you to guide and direct us. And that your peace and your graciousness not only changes our immediate relationships, but it makes our church a rich place because of how we love and know one another and that that impacts our community. That our community is made more righteous by us coming before you and putting you with us, Lord. So we ask the blessings of righteousness and the blessings of humility that your shalom rests on this house and the city. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone. And prayer team people, if you'd come forward if anyone needs prayer.